welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about right whales with Regina Asmudis Silvia. And Regina is the executive director of the North American Office of Whale and Dolphin Conservation. And she's been with WDC since 2005, and she began her work with whales here in the south shore of Massachusetts back in 1990. Hello, Regina. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, So where are you calling from? Are you down in your world headquarters there in Plymouth? We are. We're based in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and it's a nice rainy afternoon and sitting at my computer. (laughs) So can you see the water from where you're at? I can if I walk out the front door. I can't, unfortunately, from my office, but we're just a couple hundred yards down from the beach. Well, that saves on rent money, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do do you see whales? I'm, normally, it's not. We don't normally see whales in the Inner Harbor, but we've certainly had some visitors here. We've had a minke whale that came in. We've had a humpback, uh, some dolphin species, and in the Outer Harbor, we've actually pretty consistently had right whales almost every April. That is so cool. Yeah, I've been involved with the Northeast Ocean Planners, and they've been putting up these maps of where the right whales hang out, and they have them all on the east side, you know, over by Provincetown and Wellfleet, but you guys have them right there in Plymouth on the, on the west side. We do. There's, it's in increasing in the, in the uh, early spring every year. We're seeing more and more of them come up on the west side of the bay. That is so great. Do you, do you think that power plant has any effect on that? The power plant putting out warm water? Um, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's an ongoing question, but things are much better and from a regulatory standpoint where you monitor things now and when that power plant went in nobody really had any baseline data before it went in to really see if it had an effect and so it's been there for a very long time now so it's really not clear what the impact has been Hmm. yeah that's so often the case is that we had that in Boston Harbor when we cleaned up the harbor stopped dumping sewage in the middle of the harbor all of a sudden people started seeing um well, actually, the next spring, you could see rockweed growing up because the bottom wasn't too slimy and the light level could reach the bottom. But people saw um, dolphins swimming, or porpoises, harbor porpoises, in the harbor. Of course, the truth is no one looked before that because we all parked by the water and ran away as fast as we could because that's what the chief person was <laughs> looking at stuff. So it's important that people look for things before they assume that it's never been there before. So that's a good sure. point about the power plant. You know, we just don't know. Um, if that is drawing more whales in, because we don't know what uh, where the, what the whales are doing before the plant went in there. So, um, oh, oh, tell me about the work of the whale and dolphin conservation. So, WDC is a global organization. Our headquarters are in the UK. We have an office in Germany and Australia and Argentina and here in the US. And we work under four main programs to end whaling, to end bycatch, um, to protect homes uh, for whales and to end captivity. And so uh, North Atlantic right whales are a very big project for the North American office to try and ensure their future. Um, and, and it falls both within our Homes for Whales uh, program and also within our Ending Bycatch program. 
And why North Atlantic right whales instead of say humpback whales or fin whales? We do a lot of we do a lot of humpback work as well, um, and we we certainly have a our office here in North America has a very large whale view to it, um, largely because of the the different species that are in the Gulf of Maine. But the I think the the fact that right whales are unfortunately literally on the brink of extinction. Um, in the foreseeable future, that we've we've had a very focused program on right whales since the office opened in 2005. But you know, the prioritization of it and the urgency of it is is very palpable at this moment. Right. So the population of humpbacks is in the thousands, right? And then right whales are a lot less. Yeah, from a species perspective, but for for humpback whales as well, you know, we have a behaviorally and culturally distinct population that lives off the coast of New England and what's called the Gulf of Maine, um, that while they're likely related to the larger North Atlantic uh, population, these are, like I said, they're behaviorally and culturally distinct. And there's only about a thousand of them here too. And they are also significantly impacted um, by the same human threats that right whales face. And so we, we actually do, do worry about these humpbacks as well. Oh, that's great because... They are the local humpbacks, and, you know, they get humpbacks off of um, Newfoundland that seem to winter, you know, further east in the Caribbean than, than your New England ones do. So it's important that you're, you're helping the locals. That's great to hear. Uh, let's we talk are. some We're about right whales. Yeah, what, uh, I understand that um, the right whale conservation efforts were kind of paying off that for, you know, decades you were sort of seeing an increase. And then what happened? So there, there was a, a progressive, look like slow, um, but notable recovery in North Atlantic right whales. And this is a very distinct species. It's the entire, the entire species has fewer than 500 animals left in it. They live primarily between the East Coast, close to the coast too, between the East Coast of the U.S. and, and Eastern Canada. And there's been a few outliers that have been seen you know, sometimes uh, in different parts of the Atlantic, but this is primarily their habitat here. And there was a a very slow but notable up to 2% increase um, per year up until about 2010, and then a decline uh, started to be noticed. And there's research that just came out from Richard Pace and Peter Corcoran and some other folks at the Northeast Fishery Science Center that's documented that since 2010, uh, through the data that they looked at it two, through 2015, that there's been a consistent 1% decline each year. And Dr. Mark Baumgartner from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution has done a little bit more math and said that if this decline continues and we're impacting female right whales in the same way, we could have the species be functionally extinct within 23 years. Yikes, if the trend continued. Um, just yes. to back up a bit for our listeners who may not know right whales as well as as, as we do, um, the right whales, what they summer around Cape Cod and north to like Nova Scotia and and then they winter off the southeast U.S. or something? Or What are the areas of these whales? So we, we used to think we know what they did. <laughs> um, so we used to think we had a handle on it and um, what historically was was happening was that there would be a late 
winter, early spring population that would come into Cape Cod Bay. Um, those would then move off further east of the Cape to an area called the Great Salt Channel. Um, from there, they would move north into the, what's called the Bay of Fundy, um, so between Maine and Nova Scotia. And then in the fall, they would come down to uh, off of New Hampshire to a place called Jeffrey's Ledge. There's some portion of the population, not all of them, but some of them would move down off the southeast to Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas, and that's where the cows would be born. And some portion would stay up into what we call the Gulf of Maine off the coast of New England. In fact, there was a, even an area in the middle of sort of the Gulf of Maine called Jordan Basin where there, that was thought in the wintertime that that was their breeding area so that they were or their mating area, I should say, so they were potentially mating up here and the pregnant females were going down south. And it seemed like that there was some consistency to that. And up until, you know, probably the last five years, and kind of all of that changed, and they did a significant redistribution. And we're, we're still trying to figure out where mm. all of them are going right now. So they're, they're, still, oh, they're the, still hanging off the southeast. Some portion still goes to the southeast for calving. Um, but the, the kind of a stuff off of New England has really changed dramatically. And, and now they're not even staying necessarily in New England, but they're going up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada. Right. So what happened there? So I, I understand that in 2015 and 16, um, the New England researchers went looking in the Gulf of um, St. Lawrence above Nova Scotia there for uh, right whales. Right, so there was a steady decline in what was thought to be these known habitats off in the Bay of Fundy, like between, like within the New England waters, kind of between Maine and, and Nova Scotia, and there's Roseway Basin, and there are some other places that the New England Aquarium had consistently been finding these whales all summer, you know, late summer and, and early fall, but they started to notice a decline and that they just weren't finding the whales in these, what were thought to be historic habitats, and they had to be going somewhere. And there had been some sightings up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and that wouldn't seem to be unrealistic that that was part of their historic range. But to lose this really kind of stable habitat um, and trying to figure out where they where they were going, they did do some dedicated survey efforts up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and you know, not too much of a surprise found in their their first couple of years, you know, forty right whales up there. Which again, when you're talking about a population of you know fewer than five hundred, that's a substantial. A number of whales to have kind of gone up into this habitat that wasn't thought to be one of their prime habitats historically. At least for that's from like ten percent of the whales in the eighties. You know? I'm sorry. That's like ten percent of the whales. Yeah. Yep. That's and like, then yeah. this year, there are over a hundred seen up there. Well, well. Before we get to this year, I understand that you know when they're surveying whales, which you do from airplanes, I guess you're looking down at the whales. And they have distinctive markings on their heads, their face, that you're able to get, like, mug shots and know individual whales. Is that true? Yeah, so, so right whales are really cool because you can, there's different techniques to individually identify all kinds of different species of whales. So for humpback whales, you look at the underside of their tail uh, and their, their fluke, and they have a unique pattern they're born with. Or blue whales, you can kind of literally look at the mottled spots on their side and figure out who they are. Uh, for fin whales, you can look at a, a kind of a racing kind of pattern down their side on the right side with their dorsal fin. So there's different things for different whales, but for right whales, it's you have to look at their head. And the coolest part to me about this is that they're they're not born with it, but it's their 
within their first year, they start to get these little bony growths that come out of there. It's like a callus. So if you play guitar a lot or something and you get calluses on your, on your um, fingers, it's, they have these calluses that will pop out of the top of their head, and they're all black. But the thing I think is really cool about it, that pattern of calluses is unique to that particular whale, but the really cool part is it looks white when you look at it because they have these tiny little what are called cyamids, and they're tiny little crustaceans that are white, and they're living, and they're actually just kind of eating dead tissue off the callus all the time. So the pattern that you're looking at actually moves. So it's not necessarily oh my stable. Yeah, but it's stable to like, you know, for in a photograph, you can tell the general pattern, but the thing that you're looking at is actually mobile and moving because it's all these little white critters that are climbing around on its head. But they look like eyebrows and mustache and stuff like, you know, like where we might have facial hair. And, exactly. Um, Whales are mammals, and so they have hair. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah, so where the calluses yeah. come out, and there's little whiskers that come out there, too. So they kind of do have, like, a mustache, and they have, you know, a beard kind of. They have little chin hair things, and they have hair where, I guess, around what would consider to be an eyebrow. But they these callous forms, there's only whiskers left. But the reason that they look white is because of all these little living cyamids that climb around on there. That's so cool. So you, so you know individual whales, and I understand that when they combine the 2015 and 2016 counts, you know, each was about 40 to 45 whales, they realized that they had photographed like 74 individual whales up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Now, do you think that different white, white whales, some are there different years, or do you think maybe the survey area was too small or short so that they didn't see all the whales that were up there, or... I think we don't know. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, because it, things have shifted and, and whales are showing up in different places, but there's some acoustic data to show that right whales might actually be hanging around the mid-Atlantic year-round, some of them. Um, this year, we had right whales consistently seen south of Nantucket during the summer, which is not a normal thing that we would have considered a few years ago to be a some place that you would, in the summertime, think that you'd find right whales. So... I think there's probably more, certainly, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence than anybody had seen, but I, I think that their distribution shifts are well beyond that they all moved up there, and I think that we need to really kind of take a much broader look along the entire East Coast and, and Eastern Canada to, to try and figure this out. But the 74 that was seen up in the St. Lawrence were not, none of those individuals were, like, photographed the next, the other summer in the Gulf of Maine or something, because you've got pretty good mud shots, I guess. Or, or maybe they haven't right, done so that the, analysis. So the New England Aquarium, uh, they curate a catalog of all the sightings of known individuals. And I think, again, that sort of, if you think about it from that, they used to spend a lot of time in the Bay of Fundy photographing these animals, and they kind of disappeared from there. Um, but there's not every right whale. There's so much effort to look at right whales. It's pretty pretty solid data to say that there's fewer than 500 and uh, many of them get photographed but they don't all necessarily go in the same places all the time so some are only seen in the southeast and they don't necessarily get seen up in the northeast but then if the efforts mm. are on the bay of Fundy and some of them are going to the gulf of st lawrence they might not be seen um so it's it's really it it really does show how much how important these surveys are and how important important it is to get these photographs to really kind of be able to figure out who's who's where 
yeah, the whales are kind of mysterious. They're not just playing along and lining up for the mug shots. They're they are not. Bases. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're not cooperating. No, um, no, they've, so they've been then, very uncooperative in the past few years. I know they might have had free will or something, you know, heaven forbid. Um, <laughs> so, so then this summer, what happened this summer? They went looking up in the St. Lawrence uh, Gulf there. So this summer, unfortunately, a lot of the effort that went on in the Gulf of St. Lawrence was precipitated by an unprecedented tragedy of just, a huge number of dead right whales in a short period of time. So it started in June, and we had, we had lost we had lost a right whale in Cape Cod Bay in April. Um, but then in June, there was a, a dead right whale found in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and then in, in searching for that dead right whale, another one was located in another. And so by the time October came around, there were 12 known dead right whales in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And that's probably oh an underestimate. And... Um, and the surveyors, what, they found like 100 whales up there this summer? They did, and they found, that they found a, a pretty significant number of living right whales up there. Again, a lot of effort going in, seeing this unprecedented number of dead animals. There was a whole lot more you know, effort to try and figure out where these right whales were, and they, they did find about 100 in a... a, a Somewhere in, in different parts, but certainly the, the highest concentrations in what would, I guess, be the kind of uh, mid to northwestern part of the the Gulf of St. Lawrence before you get into the to the Gulf of St. Lawrence Seaway. So south of Quebec, yeah, I understand Edward Island. I understand it was just above Prince Edward Island. Yeah, I guess yep. I said that. Um, we're going to take a short break and come back and talk with Regina more about right whales after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Regina Asmudis Sylvia. She's executive director of the North American Office of Whale and Dolphin Conservation. And uh, Regina was telling us about the tragedy of, well, the thrill of finding 112 right whales up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, this body of water above Nova Scotia between Newfoundland and Quebec. And, um, but unfortunately, 12 right whales were found dead in the waters up there. And uh, we should, you know, it's interesting, you know, why do they call them the right whales? That's a really great question. And, you know, I think the, the most common thought behind it is that it's because they were considered to be the right whales to hunt. They were slow. They were easy to catch. They were coastal. Um, and... More importantly, for particularly for an old whaling ship, they floated when they were dead, and so that they were, they had lots of oil in them, and they also had lots of baleen. And a lot of times, right whales were hunted uh, not only for meat historically since the 11th century, but you know, colonial times they were hunted for baleen because baleen was the precursor to plastic. It's called was what they called whalebone. They made corset stays and buggy whips and umbrella ribs and all kinds of things we use plastic for now, but right whales have about a ton of baleen in their mouth and it can be about six feet long. So it's really valuable commodity. And the whale oil was good fuel, you know, before they found petroleum. And actually as the whaling fell off, they realized that menhaden oil could be, you couldn't eat menhaden, but you could, you could use the oil. So there was a boon for a moment of trying to cash in on menhaden oil until, until they came up with petroleum and stuff. But it's interesting that these whales, they, they float, you know, when they're dead. And uh, other whales will sink, like the sperm whale sinks away, and it becomes, you know, a major oasis on the bottom of the deep ocean floors, which is just like uh, detritus lying around or sediment lying around. So it's, it's a huge part of the ecology is having that food source go down. But these guys, they just float, it seems like, for a long time. So, so talk to us more about uh, what happened this summer up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. 
so like I said, it was this, it was this really unprecedented tragedy that um, this year, along with the 12 that died up there, we had four that died off the U.S. And so over 3% of the entire population was dead in less than six months. And, you know, to try and give you some perspective on what that means, if you looked at human populations globally, that would be like losing 70% of the U.S. population in less than six months. And, and it is a, is a, a really difficult thing to, I think, for all of us to wrap our head around that, that we had such a short and quick and impactful loss to a species that is already in decline and, and uh, has, so many people have been fighting to save for so long. So, so what are some of the details of um, those 12 whales that um, were found dead up there? So there's this, this great organization, um, the Marine Animal Response Society in Canada, that went out and uh, worked very hard to retrieve carcasses and to try and do what are called necropsies, so in kind of an animal autopsy to find out why they died. Um, and of some of them were too decomposed uh, to be able to really examine on any level, but they were able to necropsy seven of them. And in those where they could find results, um, like I said, some of them were pretty decomposed. Um, they were able to confirm that four, possibly five, died from what we call blunt trauma, which is basically a vessel strike, um, that they were killed because a, a boat or a ship hit them. Um, one definitely um, died from entanglement in fishing gear, um, although there's a suspicion that a second one, they're still pending necropsy results, also had entanglement-related uh, injuries with it. And these are entanglements and vessel strikes are, again, the, and historically, when I say historically, I mean for the past you know, 30 years, have been the biggest human-caused threats to this population. And, you know, along with those data that from the necropsies, um, there were five known that were entangled um, that were last seen alive or in, in some of which we don't, some, a couple were disentangled, but um, there's a few that we still don't know the fate of. So we know that entanglements and ship strikes really are the, again, continuing to be the big threat. And so how did the government respond to this? Or tell us more about the entanglements. What? I mean, around here, it's the lobstermen that um, are try have fixed gear, and they're trying to sink their gear and stuff. What happened right, so, so for large whales, I mean, particularly for right whales and humpbacks here off our east coast, the, the entanglement threats are really in what we call a fixed gear fishery. Um, so it's a gear that's set to fish, and it's marked with a, a line that goes to the surface to mark where the gear is. And it's the vertical line, that buoy line. Um, that tends to seem to be the biggest risk at this point to... Uh, whale entanglements and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence there's a fishery there that uses traps called a snow crab fishery and so they're they're fishing for snow crabs most of which are exported into the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. It's a single pot fishery so it's not, they, they have one pot on the bottom and that's like the cage where they catch the snow crabs and then align to the surface uh, to mark where that pot is and it looks like the, the biggest issue for and the biggest risk this year was the snow crab fishery and they did double the quota this year for the snow crab fishery. The, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans of Canada did. So the, there was a lot more effort um, going out there to fish this year and a lot more whales, and that certainly was a perfect storm for a lot more problems. Yes. 
I read the report on the on the whale deaths, and it said that there was some confusion about how many uh, snow traps, snow crab traps that uh, that whale had had uh, encountered and gotten entangled with. There were differing reports from the fishermen and the government, I guess. Yeah, and these are but, these are the fishing area isn't very close to shore, so there's you know without effort on of going out there to to look for. Um, these whales, and to to look where this is happening, it's there. It's it's not something that someone would incidentally see, and I and I think it's really, really, really important um, just to remind people that neither neither vessel operators or ship captains or fishermen are trying to harm whales. That there's no intent that this literally is bycatch. It's incidental to the operation of the boat, or it's incidental to the operation of the fishery. Um, but unfortunately for the whales, it's lethal. Yeah, apparently that whale plowed into a number of lines and got really tangled up. Um, gosh. And then... Um, I mean, if you, it makes sense, though, if you think about it, like from, from what we can see from the entanglements and the way that they wrap into them is that they, they probably do feel very panicked. And so they're, they're not pulling necessarily away from the gear, but they're actually rolling into it. And that may be the path of least resistance because then you're not hurting yourself by pulling away, but you're actually exacerbating that entanglement by rolling in it. And then when you try and swim, you now have gear attached to you. It's easy to then blunder into something else and even pick up more traps. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, apparently. Um, so they, uh, they closed the fishery, or how'd they respond? I mean, to add to the tragedy of the right whales, I think it's important to acknowledge the, the human tragedy that was involved as well, because there were of the right whales that were alive, seen entangled in fishing gear. Um, there were a couple that were disentangled, and unfortunately during the second disentanglement, the whale um, reacted in a way that it hit its fluke, and it, it killed a man named Joe Howlett, who is a seasoned, professionally trained um, rescuer. And it's a phenomenal, tragic loss um, to the community. Um, he was a fisherman. He was trained. He was beloved by the his community and the whale researchers. Um, but a- along with that, the Canadian government um, then suspended all disentanglements of large whales in Canada. So in some respects, actually reduced protections to whales because we'll in- instill continually t- to right now, will not allow disentanglement efforts to go on. They did eventually close the fishery, but they only closed it two days early after it had met over 90% of its quota. Um, so it's a little bit hard to say that they had reacted in a way that was very proactive at that point. Um, so that they were they were pretty they were literally two days away from the fishery closing anyway. But they did close it a couple of days after Joe's death. Right, but two days before it was slated to close anyhow, and after yeah. it had met over ninety percent of its quota. So it wasn't. I mean, certainly the 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 entanglement issue had been, um, and, and the mortalities had been something that the government was aware of, um, but still, I, I think, did wait to take action. And then well, at they, least they did take action, because every day could be another dead whale, so even two days is better than no days, because you've got so right, few whales no. and you've got right there in the water and stuff. But, uh, okay, that's, that's an opinion thing. So, what, how about the ship strikes? What could they do about that? 
Um, so they had initially put in a, a ship strike um, speed rule vol- voluntarily and asked ships to slow down um, to 10 knots, but found that that wasn't actually something that they were getting a lot of compliance with. Um, so they, they finally put in a mandatory temporary 10-knot speed rule, and that, you know we were very grateful for that and very appreciative of the fact that that, that went into effect. Again, the downside from my perspective is that there's no commitment to implement that rule again next year. Um, so we're, that's the, one of the things that we're looking for is that, and we've written a formal request to Canada um, along with the Humane Society and the Center for Biological Diversity and Defenders of Wildlife and, and Whale and Dolphin Conservation have, have formally in, put in a request to Canada to consider something that is more stable and permanent in the places where right whales are moving forward so that we don't have another year like this again next year. Right. Well, probably this was unusual for the Canadian government to find all these whales they can get by ships. And so we've got to convince them that the whales might be back again. I mean, don't you have every reason to believe that the whales will be back in those same places again next year? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think yeah. that this is an emerging habitat. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that this is a one-off. I think that there's going to consistently be as many, if not more, right whale sightings up there. And so, you know, and I think that that's where, that's where we have to look at, in general, um, looking at our policies kind of evolving and changing as we have climate changes, as we have distribution changes, as things are changing in our oceans, the policies that we set up before may not be applicable now and that they have to evolve um, with those distributional changes. And this is a place in the Gulf of St. Lawrence that wasn't a, a place where right whales hung out in these huge numbers previously. So there wasn't a lot of effort going on and to try and protect them there. And, the, and, and we're not saying that Canada didn't do anything. They certainly had done a lot of effort up in the Bay of Fundy um, so that they had put in areas to be avoided where ships, they were asking ships not to go in. They moved shipping lanes in the Bay of Fundy to keep um, ships away. They, they changed some of their lobstering season to reduce risk. And they did it where whales used to go. Um, now they need to do it where whales go now. Yeah, and, and remind the, us about, you know, the success story of, uh, of buoys off of Boston. So the, the buoys that were the passive acoustic buoys that were put in the shipping lane off of Boston, I think, are a great example of they're, they're, they're let up right now. Um, we've had whale calls that are being heard that they're a, they're a passive acoustic buoy that gives out information on real time. They filter out what's called an up call from right whales. So it's the sound that only right whales make when they're calling each other. Um, and they, they hear about five miles around the buoy. So it doesn't tell you how many whales are there, but it'll tell you if there are whales are there or not. And the, the idea was to try and get the word out to, to ships that were coming into Boston to say, hey, there's whales here, you should slow down. The downside of that is that the only ships that were required to slow down were the LNG tankers that helped to fund the, the buoys being put in place. None of the other ships were required to. Um, but the idea that at least there was that information out there um, that could get out to the ships, hopefully that they were a little bit more aware, and certainly the whale watch boats or recreational boaters can go online and find this, and, and hopefully they have more awareness and are trying to you know, be a little bit more vigilant when they're transiting the area as well. Right. I've, I've seen this a good buy-in of a lot of ships into the program, and that uh, I happen to be fortunate to go out on a whale watch 
uh, the first Saturday in November earlier this month. And sure enough, there was, you know, the, the whale alert was on, so that there were right, there was the right whale in the area, but there was this enormous uh, container uh, ship just stacked high with stuff, and it was moving really slowly um, in compliance with that, you know, because it's not good for business to have dead whales on your bow and stuff. So that, that's very exciting. Now, uh, that's the kind of thing that the Canadian government's got to think about doing for... Um, the Gulf of St. Lawrence Seaway is that you, you need to, um, when the whales are there, you got to slow the ships down. And when they're not there, well, that's such a big deal. But I, I hear that they, uh, the Canadians got a drone that could listen for whales. And so they wouldn't have to deal with the ice flows of buoys and stuff, but uh, that the drone would, would swim around up there and, and tell them the vicinity of where the, the whoop call was being heard from different right whales. And uh, they've got to do something, don't they? they keep the ships going slower? They do. And I mean, and I think that, you know, the, the acoustic data combined with the sightings data, you know, will give some, hopefully some seasonality to the when right whales are there. I mean, you're never going to be able to account for everyone. They don't talk all the time. You can't see them all the time. Um, but you can get a good idea when you, you combine these sightings and these passive acoustic kind of survey efforts to at least get some, you know, over time to say, okay, well, this is, this is the height of the season. This is when they're mostly there. That's when we have to be more vigilant. That's when we should slow ships down. You know, and I think that the U.S. did a pretty good job with that, um, with the ship strike speed rule that was put in place here. Um, we worked very hard to get that rule put in place and to extend it beyond its sunset. And it, it has very specific locations, about 20 miles out from each port seasonally in the southeast, the mid-Atlantic, and the northeast. Um, to slow ships down wow. only during those those hot times of, of right whale presence. So it, it also allows the ships, because they, they know um, when those speed restrictions are in place, most of the ships will plan their voyages about two years in advance. So they can account for that slowdown, and that helps them as well to say that they need to be in port at this time, so they have to compensate for this, this speed reduction here, and it helps them figure out their voyage planning better. So that kind of stuff, if the ships know in advance, it's really, really helpful to them as well. So this is really encouraging that uh, although we've had an incredibly high death toll of 12 uh, right whales in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, uh, at their expense, we've learned that, you know, we can't have uh, snow crab fishing uh, in the vicinity of whales, and ships have got to be aware of whales and go slowly when they're in the area. So, uh, there's hope that we can continue to improve our um, how we treat these whales and, and eliminate the human-caused deaths of right whales by um, ship strikes and entanglements. Uh, I'm, we're going to take a short break, and I'll be right back with Regina after this break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Regina Asmudis. Sylvia. Uh, she's the executive director of the North American Office of Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Uh, Regina, how can people learn more about your work, get in touch with you, uh, that kind of stuff? So the easiest way is to just go to our website, and it's whales.org, W-H-A-L-E-S.org, so more than one whale, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, so if you, we have a ton of information on our website, and uh, you can email at contact at whales.org, and you, so that's another way, or call the office at 508-746-2522. Uh, so any of those methods will get you to us, and we're always happy to talk to people and try and get more people to to jump on board to help whales. Yeah, it's a fabulous site. I totally recommend it. There's really fascinating graphics about different topics of uh, different campaigns you're working on. Um, and actually, you don't see right, right whales right away because there's so many other pressing things. 
But, but one of the pressing issues that we can make a difference for right whales is uh, trying to reduce uh, and further reduce entanglement. There's been a lot of efforts by lobstermen in particular to uh, sink their lines and stuff, but it, it sounds like there's more to do. I think there's a lot more to do, and I think that we, you know, Dr. Stormy Mayo from the Center for Coastal Studies, I think, summed up risk the best that I've ever heard, and it could be one whale around a lot of gear. It could be a lot of whales around one piece of gear, and all of those things ultimately result in risk, and we have a lot of lobster gear, a lot of crab gear along the East Coast, and certainly in Canada as well, and, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been done to try and reduce risk, but it's 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 not equivalent across the board. Um, so, I, you know, I always kind of pull out for something people can do. If they're going to eat lobster, I would ask that they preferentially choose lobster that was fished in Massachusetts because the effort here to reduce risk is far outweighed than any other state or any, or even in Canada. They do a lot more down here. So they have, think they put the sinking ground line rule in um, first, um, three years before anybody else. Whereas Maine, for instance, 71% of their waters are exempted from the rule. Um, they have done vertical line reduction. They actually have a closure in place when right whales are here um, so that when they're in Cape Cod Bay, there's no fishing allowed in the bay at all, no, no trapped gear fishing. Um, so I think that there's, there's been a lot more being done here. And then the same lobsters that you can get, eat in Maine. So, you know, that's a really simple way. As if you're going into a restaurant, ask if their lobster came from Massachusetts. If you're going to eat a lobster and you're traveling, then try and buy it in Massachusetts. I think that it's not whale safe, but it's certainly safer here. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I've been working with Mass Lobstermen Association, and, and uh, they, they've really been trying to do everything they can. And not all of us most happy about it, but they certainly are on board and, and done a lot. And if you're ever in Harvard Square, I recommend Charlie's Kitchen. You can get twin lobster roll for $12.95, and that's a pretty good... You can have a lobster dinner for less than 20 bucks. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> so I'm right. promoting local businesses here. And I'm sure you've yeah. got places in Plymouth and so forth. We do. Like Wood Seafood, if you're in Plymouth, um, they buy locally and fresh. And so you know, really encourage people to try and find the places that are, are serving the Massachusetts lobster to try and reward these guys that are under a lot more pressure than the other states are, and they're doing a lot more. So I think that that's a, that's a good way to have your lobster and eat it too, I guess. The lobster that they serve at McDonald's is Canadian frozen lobster brought down, so it's very inexpensive for them. Um, so you, you might save money, but you're not helping the mass lobstermen by eating McDonald's lobster. Right. Um, oh, so we were talking earlier about, this. you know, whales are being killed by these things, but stress is a big issue for the, the survival of the species. Talk to, some more, talk to us some more about that. So yeah, so I think that you know it's it's it is a it is a scenario, unfortunately, of death by a thousand cuts. So even if the entanglement doesn't kill them right away, um, it certainly stops their energy. And there's these sublethal effects of entanglement that are particularly impacting females in the population, and that's really causing a, a big problem with their ability to calf. So there's there's these sublethal effects of entanglement, and and then add to that um, ocean noise. And that's an increasing problem and potentially even more of an increasing problem under this administration. So there are data that have been published to show that right whales will have an increase in the glucocorticoid hormone. It's a, it's a stress-related hormone. Um, so the, the more you're stressed, the, 
that leads to reductions in your immune system. You're more likely to get sick. It, it, it wreaks havoc with your ability to reproduce. And so along with these, you know, these proximate causes of death of lethal entanglements and ship strikes, there's also these prolonged agonizing things that are impacting the populations too, like these sublethal effects of entanglements and these, these stress hormones that are, that are impacted from ocean noise. So, you know, I think, it's, it's never one thing. It's the cumulative impacts that are, that are the biggest tragedy. Yeah, they found that in the Canadian auto, uh, necropsies of the dead whales that the one that had been entangled was emaciated. It had lost all its fat. It basically starved. So yep. e- even if a whale is only tangled up for a couple of days or weeks, that is diminishing its reserves. It's stressing it, and it's also, yeah, so um, we can't underestimate the, the impacts of that. So, so what can people do to um, save the North Atlantic white whale? I think, you know, I think that there's a, there's a few things that, you can, that we can all do easily, and, well, some maybe more easily than others, but, you know, one thing that you can do, like we were talking about, is, is use your pocketbook carefully. You know, so you make those choices from a consumer standpoint of buying things locally, you know, choosing the Massachusetts lobster, you know, over another lobster if you're going to eat lobster, or maybe saying, you know, maybe right now until things get fixed, pass on the snow crab. Um, maybe that's not a good choice at this point until we can figure out a way to get that fishery functioning without killing whales. So I think that those consumer choices are important. I, I think that if you can dig into your pocketbook and support a conservation organization, I think that that's also really important. I mean, uh, we do a lot of work on right whales, a lot of advocacy, so we're always looking for support, but there's, there's other groups. There's the Humane Society, the Center for Biological Diversity, Defenders of Wildlife, you know, the New England Aquarium, the Center for Coastal Studies. There's a, it takes a village um, to save these animals, and there's a lot of groups working really hard on them. So if you can find that ability to support a group, I would encourage you to do that. And I well, think, what are the programs you, know, you have to, to save them? I mean, you've got some programs there. Yeah, it's, there's there's a lot of a lot of dedicated people working to save to save these the species. And you know, I think also something that doesn't cost any money, but a little bit of your time is to use your voice. And particularly under this administration, I think it's so incredibly important to take that five minutes, ten minutes of your time um, to get in touch with your, your representative, to get in touch with your senator, and let them know that you care. Um, there's a bill right now that's been passed its committee in, in the House, theoretically going to go for a vote next week, that could do some really destructive, make some really destructive changes to the Marine Mail Protection Act. And, you know, this is a, a incredibly monumental framework that has helped protect right whales and other Marine mammal species in the U.S. since 1972. And if this passes, it will allow oil and gas companies to circumnavigate all kinds of rules and mitigation that they have to do now. It would be really terrible. It will add to all kinds of threats to the species. And, you know, it's, it's so easy on our website. If you go on our website, again, whales.org, um, we have it laid out that if you have 10 minutes, how you can write a letter. Um, if you have five minutes, how you can download an app. And contact your your representative. And if you have one minute, um, we have a petition that you can sign. So, just again, not a lot of time, but a huge impact if you if you have the ability to use your voice. What's the website? It's whales.org. 
nwhales.org. And right on the banner at the top of the banner of the webpage, it says, Say No to HR 3133. And that's the bill that's being proposed that we're trying to get as many people to to use their voice to ask their representative to say no to this bill. It's a really bad bill. It permits the Secretary of Interior to ignore regulations to place uh, oil rigs and gas rigs. It is telling communities if they agree to have it in their backyard or off their coast, they'll get more money. The closer you are to the rig, the more money you got. Uh, I was listening to the, uh, the House hearings and this representative from the coastal South Carolina has said, we're not getting money from tourism, so we want to sell out to oil drilling off our coast. It's our right to do that. Well, that ain't so good for the right whales that are breeding right there off of, well, South, uh, yeah, just south of South Carolina, you're starting to get breeding areas and stuff. So this is amazingly terrible legislation they're working on. You know, they're talking about opening up Bristol Bay oil drilling, which is the best salmon runs in the, in the world, and, um, and so forth. So please go to uh, www.whales.org and, um, and, and put your 10 cents in. Legislators rarely hear from their constituents except for the big three issues, and, and those are pretty ossified. So this is really important to speak up for uh, ocean conservation and whales, right whales in particular, by contacting this bill. Um, uh, Regina, you got some final words for our people. It's been great to um, hear your um, hear learn more about right whales here. I just I, I just really appreciate the opportunity, and I and I hope people will Google to see what a right whale looks like, and I hope that everybody gets a chance in 20 years that we are out seeing right whales out here, and it's it's not something that's in the history book. So. Um, we have a chance. We really all have a chance to make a difference right now, and I really hope that people take that opportunity. Right. And, yeah, the right whales come right along the shore of Cape Cod, like Provincetown and stuff, so you don't even have to go out in a boat. You can, uh, you know, follow the, um, talk to, what is it, the uh, Center for Coastal Studies and uh, find out, you know, where the sightings are. But uh, in order to take care of something, you have to care for it. So, Get out there and see right whales. We need people reporting right whales if you're up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence so that people know where they are and stuff. So uh, it's wonderful the, the contribution that citizen science is doing in terms of informing people of where the whales are. So there's lots of ways to be involved. Uh, Regina, sure. thank you for... Um, no, thank, thank you, you know, so much for having me. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thank you all for listening. Please take care of yourselves and then take a moment to take care of the planet. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.